0: Chapter 9 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Free Trade Struggle, Member for Oxford. I need not go over again here the old familiar story of the struggle against the Corn Laws and in favor of free trade. The Anti-Corn Law League had become a popular power in England. For a long time it was able to command but a very poor support in the House of Commons. The movement in the House of Commons was led by Mr. Charles Villers, who I am glad to say is still living, an in Homeric phrase, looking on the earth. Mr. Villers was an aristocrat by birth, a member of the great clarendon family so famous at many periods of english history for years he led the parliamentary movement in favour of the abolition of duties on the importation of foreign corn later on he obtained the splendid assistance first of mr cobden and then of mr bright who both obtained seats in the house of commons still the movement more powerful in the country made but little advance in Parliament, and indeed its prospects seemed darkest at the very moment when events were coming to ensure its rapid success. In England, and perhaps in other states as well, an object lesson is needed in order to secure the passing of any great reform. The object lesson in this case was given by the Irish Famine famine itself said bright against which we had warred, joined us in the autumn of eighteen forty five the total failure of the irish potato crop set in and the vast majority of the irish working population depended absolutely upon the potato for subsistence under the conditions it was all but impossible to maintain the duty on the importation of foreign corn. There can be no doubt whatever that the mind of Sir Robert Peel and the mind of his great rival, Lord John Russell, had been tending more and more for some time in the direction of free trade. Peel's cabinet all but broke up on the question, and he had to bring in capable men to supply the places of those who could not work with him in his new policy. Mr. Gladstone had by this time become a thorough convert to the principles of free trade, and he was invited by Peel to accept the office of colonial secretary in the room of Lord Stanley, afterwards the Earl of Derby who found that he could not go further with Peel on the way to the repeal of the Corn Laws. A curious fact in the story is that Mr. Gladstone's accepting office led to his exclusion from Parliament for the whole of the memorable session during which Peel's free-trade scheme was debated in the House of Commons. It came about this way, Mr. Gladstone's acceptance of office compelled him to offer himself for re-election to his constituency if he desired to retain a seat in Parliament. But then Mr. Gladstone was the representative of Newark, a borough which was practically controlled by the Duke of Newcastle, from whose influence and patronage, as I have already explained, Mr. Gladstone had secured his seat the Duke of Newcastle was a sturdy protectionist, and could not be expected to give his influence in favor of a free-trade candidate. Mr. Gladstone felt a natural and an honorable scruple about opposing his old friend and supporter, the Duke of Newcastle, and he therefore made up his mind to retire from the representation of the borough and to remain out of Parliament, until such time as an opportunity could arise for contesting some other seat. He issued his retiring address to the Newark Electors on the 5th of January, 1846. By accepting the Office of Secretary of State for the Colonies, he said, I have ceased to be your representative in Parliament. On several accounts, I should have been peculiarly desirous at the present time of giving you an opportunity to pronounce your constitutional judgment on my public conduct by soliciting at your hands a renewal of the trust which I have already received from you on five successive occasions and held during a period of thirteen years. But, as I have good reason to believe, that a candidate recommended to your favor through local connections may ask your suffrages, it becomes, my very painful duty to announce to you, on that ground alone, my retirement from a position which has afforded me so much honor and satisfaction. Mr. Gladstone declared that he had accepted office only because he held that it was for those who believed that the government was acting according to the demands of public duty to testify to that belief however limited their sphere might be, by their cooperation. The course he had taken, he declared, was taken in obedience to the clear and imperious call of public obligation. Mr. Gladstone, it was well known, had been the chief inspiration of Sir Robert Peel on this question of free trade. Even when he was not actually in office, the policy of Peel's government had been mainly molded by his energy, his knowledge, and his guidance. It seemed, therefore, a curious stroke of fate that the whole session of debate on the free trade scheme should have been carried on without Mr. Gladstone's presence and cooperation. It seems to me something like a positive loss to the history of the English Parliament that Mr. Gladstone's wonderful eloquence and marvellous power of arraying facts and figures should not have been allowed a chance of influencing that great debate." Sir Robert Peel, of course, carried his scheme in despite of the resistance of nearly all his former Tory followers, but he fell from power in a moment. He had undertaken to introduce a measure for the establishment of a new coercion scheme in Ireland. On the very day when the free trade bill passed through its third reading in the House of Lords, Peel's coercion bill for Ireland was thrown out by a large majority in the House of Commons. Some of the liberals and nearly all the radicals in England had always made it a principle to oppose mere bills for establishing coercion in Ireland, if unaccompanied by serious and solid schemes of legislative concession and reform. All these, therefore, voted against Peel on principle. The Irish members who followed O'Connell's leadership were, of course, determined to vote against it. All depended on the Tories, and the Tories were now thinking of nothing but revenge upon Sir Robert Peel for his abandonment of the cause of protection. Mr. Disraeli himself frankly owned that vengeance had triumphed over all others' sentiments in the minds of the Tory party, the field was lost, but at any rate, there should be retribution for those who had betrayed the cause. So the Peel Party was turned out of office at the very moment of its greatest triumph. Mr. Gladstone did not reappear in the House of Commons until the autumn session of 1847. There had been a general election, and Mr. Gladstone was invited to stand for the University of Oxford. There could surely have been no seat that he was better qualified to represent or which he could have had greater pride in representing. Oxford had been the home of his younger days. Its scenery, its surroundings, its buildings, its history, its traditions were dear to his heart. The sweetest memories of his youth belonged to it. His definite ambitions were formed and cultured and guided in it. Gladstone was elected for the university. He did not come first on the list. Sir Robert Harry Inglis, a bigoted Tory of the old-fashioned order, led the way. Mr. Gladstone came next, and a man whose very name is now forgotten by most people was the defeated candidate. Still, Mr. Gladstone came in as a representative of Oxford, and the university did herself honor by the choice. Later on, as we shall see, it was Oxford's perverse fate to deprive herself of the honor. But for the time at all events, Mr. Gladstone was the representative of the University of Oxford and was in his rightful place. It was later on but a new mark of his political progress when he had to seek another constituency. Mr. Gladstone's address to the electors of Oxford is even still a document of great public and still greater personal interest. It explains for the first time the change which had been coming over his convictions with regard to the relationship between the church and the state. He acknowledged that in the earlier part of his public life he had been an advocate for the exclusive support of the national religion by the state but he came to learn that it would be futile to try to maintain such a position. I found, he wrote, that scarcely a year passed without the adoption of some fresh measure involving the national recognition and the national support of various forms of religion, and in particular that a recent and fresh provision had been made for the propagation from a public chair of Arian or Socinian doctrines. The question remaining for me was whether, aware of the opposition of the English people, I should set down as equal to nothing, in a matter primarily connected, not with our own, but with their priesthood, the wishes of the people of Ireland, and whether, I should avail myself of the popular feeling in regard to the Roman Catholics for the purpose of enforcing against them a system which we had ceased by common consent to enforce against Arians, a system above all of which I must say that it never can be conformable to policy, to justice, or even to decency, when it has become avowedly partial and one-sided in its application. This address, then, shows us Mr. Gladstone in his new stage of mental and spiritual development. The old theory about the relationship between the church and state has had to give way to the teaching of experience and to the inborn conviction that it is in vain to strive against actual facts. The true fanatic, of course, learns nothing from experience. He clings to his political dogma, although he finds it wholly impossible to maintain it in action. To this mood of mind, a man of Mr. Gladstone's genius and capacity for receiving new ideas never could descend. Mr. George Russell, commenting on this event in Mr. Gladstone's career, observes that that career naturally divides itself into three main parts. The first of them ends with his retirement from the representation of Newark. The central part ranges from 1847 to 1868. Happily, the third is still incomplete. Mr. Russell's book was published in 1891. We have since seen the completion of Mr. Gladstone's political career. The whole story has been told. For some three years after the dissolution of 1847, Mr. Gladstone's life was not marked by any distinct political events, so far as his particular career was concerned. They were three years of what Robert Burns calls sturt and strife all over the European continent, and in England and in Ireland but Mr. Gladstone's political action was not of great public importance. He was as careful as ever in his attendance to his parliamentary duties, and he spoke on all manner of important public questions. He opposed the measure making lawful a marriage with a deceased wife's sister, on grounds at once social and religious, contending that such marriages are contrary to the law of God, declared for 3,000 years and upwards. In absolute contradiction to the opinions expressed in some of his former speeches, he advocated the admission of the Jews to Parliament, and indeed I may say that one of the most interesting and important events of the general election which brought Mr. Gladstone in for Oxford was the election of Baron Rothschild, a Jew for the City of London. Mr. Gladstone supported Lord John Russell in a resolution passed by the House of Commons, which declared the Jews eligible for election to all places and functions for which Roman Catholics might lawfully be chosen. He defended the establishment of diplomatic relations with the Papal Court. He called for reform in the Navigation Laws, a reform which would make the ocean, that great highway of nations, as free to the ships that traverse its bosom as to the winds that sweep it. Anyone could see by following the records of his quiet career during those years that they were a time of development with him. On many subjects his path was perfectly clear, and his way was to lead onwards. But there still clung around him some of the traditions of that Toryism under which he had been brought up, and which even yet had for him an almost romantic fascination. In 1850, the first pang of sorrow was brought into the happy life of himself and Mrs. Gladstone. In the April of that year, Catherine Jessie, a child not yet five years old, lost her life. She had suffered long from a painful illness during which she was tenderly watched over, not only by her mother, but by her father as well. This was the first intrusion of death into the household, and we may be sure that it was always remembered. There are wounds which never heal for natures like those of Mr. Gladstone and his wife. End of chapter 9